Perhaps no phrase in the Apostles' Creed makes Baptists as uncomfortable as the phrase, the Holy Catholic Church. It sounds as though we are confessing some sort of allegiance to the Roman Catholic Church or possibly even to the Pope. And something about adding the word holy even to the phrase Catholic Church only seems to further reinforce that impression. And that alone might seem like enough to some not to use the Apostles' Creed or even to distance themselves from the Apostles' Creed. But that, I believe, would be a mistake founded on a misunderstanding. The word Catholic in the phrase Holy Catholic Church is not about Rome, it's not about the Pope, it's not about the Roman Catholic Church. Instead, the word Catholic here simply means universal. It's talking about the whole church. And we'll come back to what is so significant about confessing the universal church, the holy Catholic church, later in this sermon. But we're going to begin by talking simply about the importance of the church. Why is the church so important? Why do we believe that the church is so important? And then we're going to talk about what we mean when we say that the church is holy. It's important there to understand what we do mean and what we don't mean. And then we'll come back to this idea of the the church universal and what that means. And then finally, we'll talk about that phrase in the creed, the communion of saints. In what sense is the church a communion? And along the way, we'll discover who the saints are as well. So let's start with the importance of the church. One of the reasons why we've been using the Apostles' Creed as the outline for this series of sermons is because the Apostles' Creed helps us to remember or perhaps even to realize what the scriptures emphasize as of key importance in the Christian faith. What I mean by that is this. The Apostles' Creed is a summary of the most important doctrines that Christians believe. We've seen so far in the Creed the emphasis on our belief in God the Father, who's the creator of heaven and earth. We've seen a great emphasis in the Creed on Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, and on his birth, on his death, his resurrection, his uh, ascension, and his coming return. We saw just recently the emphasis in the creed on the Holy Spirit. But but here's what I want to ask you. If you were asked to summarize the Christian faith or or even asked to list, let's say, the the five or ten most important doctrines of the Christian faith, would the church make your list? Of course, we would talk about God. Uh, We would talk about Jesus, God the Son. We'd talk about God the Holy Spirit. We would talk about salvation, how it's by grace through faith, and and all those things. And and we probably would mention some specifics, right, about Christ's life and death and resurrection and so on. But would we think to mention the church as of key importance in the Christian faith? If not, why not? You see, the the church is in the creed, not because someone somewhere along the way decided that the church should be important. The church is in the creed because 
the church is important according to the scriptures. And the creed is simply seeking to remind us of what scripture has already told us and taught us. So the church is more important than some of us may think. We may not think of the church as a key part of the Christian life, but it is. In fact, from the very beginning in the book of Acts, just after Jesus has risen from the dead and is about uh, and has ascended into heaven, the disciples are gathered together, and it says in Acts 1:14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So the disciples, including Jesus's family, they have gathered together after the ascension of Christ and they are devoting themselves to prayer, the scripture says. And then in the next chapter on the day of Pentecost, when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit and the apostles are preaching in all different languages and and Peter proclaims the gospel of Christ, how he was crucified and how he was risen and how this happened in accordance with the scriptures and how people need to repent and believe and be baptized. This is what the scripture says in Acts 2, 41 to 46. This is what it says happened next. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, it says. Right? That's uh, the gist of that passage. Left, uh, left out a couple phrases to emphasize the ones that have most to do with what we're talking about here. What it says there is that the church immediately, right, after this first Christian sermon, as it were, on the day of Pentecost, and the first gathering of the church beyond the initial group of disciples, they are devoting themselves to the same doctrines, right, to the apostles' teaching. They are devoting themselves to fellowship. They're uh, breaking bread and praying together, right? And it says that all who believed were together and had all things in common. They're caring for one another. And day by day, it says they're attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So they're gathering in public and they're gathering in private. They are gathering, though. They are together, And they're devoted to the same things. This is how the church begins. And the scripture makes clear that we have a responsibility toward one another as Christians that requires us to be together. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, it says, Let us consider how to stir one another, excuse me, stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we have responsibilities toward one another. The writer of Hebrews says we should think about how we can stir one another up, how we can encourage one another, motivate one another to love and to good works. And as part of that, he says, we're going to have to not neglect 
to meet together. Or to put it positively, we're going to have to be deliberate about and intentional about gathering together. Now, of course, there are some times when we can't do that for one reason or another. In fact, right now, I'm recording this sermon in an empty sanctuary uh, because we uh, can't meet this week, right? Um, but what this passage is saying is, is that we need to resist that becoming our habit. Sometimes we just can't meet. There are reasons and circumstances that make it where it's not possible or not feasible, but we're not meant to try to live the Christian life without regularly gathering with other Christians. That's the point. The church is an important part of the Christian faith and of the Christian life. From the very beginning, Christians have gathered together regularly and the scriptures encourage us to continue gathering together regularly. This is not an optional part of the Christian life. It is an essential part of the Christian life. So the church is important. That's why it's even in the Apostles' Creed in the first place, because the Scripture tells us that the church is an important part of what it means to be a Christian and how we uh, are able to walk with Christ, to live a faithful Christian life. We need one another. We need to be together. A second thing I want us to notice is in that phrase in the creed, it talks about the holy Catholic church. What does it mean to say that the church is holy? Now, right away, we rub up against a problem there because the church often appears unholy. Right? And we have to admit, often in the church and sometimes by the church, things that are unholy uh, take place. And we have to acknowledge that. That's true whether you're looking back at church history and thinking about some of uh, perhaps the more uh, infamous episodes in the history of the church, or whether you're talking about more current problems that have been uh, unveiled in recent years about um, various kinds of, uh, of abuse and unholiness in the church in our own country, in our own context. Right? Not talking about any particular local church, but talking about just the, the broader church. The reality is that unholy things happen in the church and are perpetrated sometimes even by leaders in the church. And we should grieve that, lament that. And we do. But that does not mean that the church is not holy. To be holy, first of all, we need to make sure we understand what, what that word means. To be holy means to be set apart for God. Right? To be, and, and with that comes uh, purity. Right? But the basic idea is to be set apart for God. To be set apart even by God. So for example, in the Old Testament, things that were holy in the tabernacle were holy because they had been set apart for God. They were designated for special use in the worship of God. So they were holy. They were set apart. 
The church, likewise, is holy because it belongs to God, because it has been set apart for God by God. For example, in Ephesians 1.1, when Paul addresses the church, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, who is he talking to when he says this, is, this letter is to the saints? He's not saying this is to people who are perfect. He's not saying this is to a special class of people who are holier than all the rest. He's simply saying, I'm writing to Christians. I'm writing to the church, and Christians are saints, which means holy ones. Right? Christians are saints, are holy. The church is holy. Why? Well, here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1-2. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and that means set apart as holy. Sanctified is another way of t- uh, talking about a saint or something that is holy. Right? It's the same, same idea there. Uh, a sanctuary right, is a place set apart for the worship of God. It's a holy place. And so saint, sanctuary, sanctified, these all have to do with holiness. Notice that he says that the church of God that is in Corinth, it's those sanctified in Christ Jesus. They're not sanctified on their own. They're not holy on their own. They're holy because they're in Christ. They're set apart for God. They're sanctified because they are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say that called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. All Christians, in other words, are called to be holy. And that could mean either when you were called to salvation, you were set apart as a saint, set apart as a holy one. Or it could mean because you have been called to salvation, now you are also called to live a holy life that's consistent with your salvation. Both of those are true. We are holy because of who we are in Christ. And we are called to be holy now, to live out holy lives because of who we are in Christ. And here's something important to notice about that statement. In 1 Corinthians 1-2, when he says, I'm writing to to you who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, if you read the rest of 1 Corinthians, you see that in many ways the church in Corinth was not holy. They were not living holy lives, many of them. Paul has many things that he has to address them quite plainly about. Immorality, division, uh, suing other Christians, all kinds of, uh, there was abuse of the Lord's Supper. All kinds of things were going on in that church that were unholy. And yet, that church belonged to Jesus. Those People were in Christ, and so he could still address them as saints, as those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So the importance of saying that the church is holy, the holy Catholic church, the importance of saying it is holy is reminding us that the church, not to say that it's perfect, Far from it. Not to say that any of us in the church are perfect. I'll be the first to say I am not But to say the church is holy is to remind us that the church is set apart for God in a way that nothing else is. 
The church is not one social club or social option among many others. It's not just another place that you can get together with people. The church is not just another nonprofit organization where you can uh, help others in your community. It is a good place for fellowship. It is a good way. Uh, it is a good place to, to come together to help others. But it is more than that. Because the church is the people of God. The church is the body of Christ. The church is set apart for God. It is holy. Listen to what Acts 20.28 says. It says, this is Paul addressing some elders, some pastors of the church in Ephesus, and he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, that is the whole church, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or pastors, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus laid down his life for the church. He loved the church. He gave himself up for the church so the church might be pure and holy without spot or wrinkle or blemish of any kind. Not because the people in it are holy, perfectly holy by any stretch. We're sinners. That's why we're here. But we're holy because we've been set apart. We've been marked. We've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. We belong to God. We've been set apart for God. The church is important to God. So it ought to be important to us as well. So the church is important. The church is holy. Now we come back to this word Catholic. What are we saying when we say we believe in the holy Catholic church? Well, when we talk about the church and when the Bible talks about the church, we talk about it mainly in two different ways. We talk about the local church and we talk about the universal church. The local church, it means our church, Minden Baptist Church, or a church down the road like First Baptist Mount Enterprise, or um, the, as Paul says in First Corinthians, the church of God in Corinth. That's the local church in that city of Corinth. There are local churches, and then there's the universal church. That is the church made up of all Christians in all places. The the whole church. That's what the the word Catholic, little c Catholic, means is universal. It's talking about the whole church. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 2 as well. So when Paul says that he's writing to the church of God that is in Corinth, again, that's the local church in that particular town. But then he says... To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. That's the universal church. You've got their other people outside of Corinth who also believe in Jesus, who also call upon Jesus, and they also are called to be saints. And we're all united, right? We all have the same Lord. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4. He says there is one body, that's the universal church, one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the hope that belongs to your call, to be the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So when the creed says we believe in one holy Catholic church, it's it's saying that not only are there local churches, right? That's assumed. 
but that those local churches make up one body, one Catholic church, one universal church, one body of Christ that profess this one faith, one God and Father of all, one Lord Jesus Christ, one Spirit. We practice one baptism. We share the one faith. We are united. And here's why this is important. Here's why it's important for us to remember that the Bible talks about the universal church, the one body of Christ. It's important because we are prone to forget that the church is bigger than our local congregation, than our denomination, than all the churches even in our own country who call on the name of Christ. The universal church consists of people all over the world. Christians in Afghanistan, Africa, and Asia. Christians in South America, Mexico, Canada. Everywhere that people claim the name of Jesus and gather to worship Him, they are part, we are part, of the one body of Christ, the one local, excuse me, not the one universal church, even though we gather in different local churches. So the church is Catholic, it's universal. The church is holy, the church is important, and finally, the church is a communion. What does it mean when it says, we believe in the holy Catholic church, the communion of saints? Well, we've already talked about what saints means, right? That's holy people. That's Christians. We're holy in Christ. What does it mean to say that there's a communion there, though, a communion of saints? What does that word mean? Now, you might be used to hearing the word communion as uh, one of the ways that Christians can refer to the Lord's Supper. Right? That even comes from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in the King James Version. Right? It, said, it speaks this way. It says, the cup of blessing which we bless. I'm not the cup in the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. That word communion there can mean fellowship, participation. In fact, in the ESV, those same verses are translated this way. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Again, that, the idea is participation, communion, fellowship. All those are uh, ways of translating the same word, the same idea. All right, so, what is the communion of saints? It's represented in the Lord's Supper. But it's not talking about the Lord's Supper. It's talking about the fellowship that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. John talks about this in his first letter, the the one we call 1 John. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. He's talking about Jesus. We saw Him, we heard Him, we preach Him to you. Why do we preach Him to you? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 
So we're preaching the gospel to you, we're preaching Jesus to you, so that you will come to faith in Christ, so that you will trust Christ, you will walk with Christ, and if you're walking with Christ, we are going to have fellowship, you and I. And the fellowship that we have is with the Father and the Son. We have fellowship with God. And so when anybody comes to faith in Christ, what happens is they have fellowship now with God because they've been reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus paid for our sin. Jesus secured our salvation. Jesus gave us new life. right? And so we now are new and we are now uh, children of God. As the Holy Spirit has come, Uh, into our hearts, the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, we're children of God, and we have fellowship with God, and we have fellowship with other believers, with other Christians. We've been reconciled not only to God, but to one another. That's part of what happens in the gospel. When you believe, right? And if you're not a Christian, that's what we invite you to do, to believe, to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, and you'll be reconciled to God, and you'll have a new family. You'll have fellowship with brothers and sisters you didn't have before, all around the world, all those who call upon the Lord Jesus. If we, this takes us back to um, Acts chapter two as well, that passage we read earlier, where it says on on the day of Pentecost, you know that so many were saved, and then it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And the fellowship. It's important not only to be devoted to the scriptures, which is where we have the apostles' teaching, but also to be devoted to fellowship, to being together, united around the gospel, united at the foot of the cross, as it were, united in celebration of Jesus' resurrection, united in calling upon our Lord. We have fellowship with one another. And that means we have fellowship with the whole Catholic Church, with the whole universal church. We have fellowship not only with one another in our own local churches, but we have a bond with all our brothers and sisters in Christ in whatever denomination or country or culture they may be found. They are our family, even if they talk differently, dress differently, even if their pattern of worship is somewhat different than ours. If they believe in the same Lord, the same God, the same Spirit, the same Gospel, practice the same baptism, believe the same faith, we have fellowship with them. We have communion with them and they with us. I want to close with a quote someone shared recently from a former Archbishop of Canterbury. That's in the the Anglican Church, um, the, the Church of England. His name was William Laud. And uh, again, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he was also martyred about 400 years ago. And he said this, this is a a prayer of his that I I would love uh, for you to make your own. He says this, he says, Gracious Father, we pray for your holy Catholic Church. Fill it with all truth, in all truth with all peace, where it is corrupt, Purify it. Where it is an error, direct it. Where in anything it is amiss, reform it. Where it is divided, reunite it. Let us pray that not only for our local church, but for the whole church, the universal church, that we would be wholly united and faithful.
Amen.